the angry tenor. <laughs> Hello, I'm your host, John Sayers, and I am the Angry Tenor. Just a reminder, the Angry Tenor goes live every Monday evening at 7 p.m. That's every Monday evening, 7 p.m., new episodes of the Angry Tenor. Let's be honest, I started this podcast because of the coronavirus. Basically, locked up in my two-bedroom apartment since March, I was about to go bananas, until I started to do the projects I had been putting off for a long time. I published my first book, Dateline, Opera, Music, Theater, and I also began research on my second book, which is still progressing. I paint abstractly and sometimes quite prolifically. I am starting to run out of wall space. I long thought it would be fun to do a podcast about my experiences on the opera and theatrical stages, but I had no idea even how to get started. However, as part of my duties for NPR on the Treasure Coast, I created, wrote, produced, and hosted a program called the Opera Minute. That's right, Opera in a Minute. I had been with the Reading for the Blind program with the station for a long time, dating back to my reading for the Lighthouse for the Blind. The station kept after me to do something, but had no money to pay for anything. They also, because they bought so many programs from NPR, did not have a lot of program space available. So, the Opera Minute was born. Basically, I used the birth date, death date, or some other highlight of a singer, and created a one-minute show where I gave a brief bio, a brief reason for the featured artist, and creatively, very creatively, a short, maybe 30 to 40 seconds cut from an aria, and put all that together in a program that lasted 58 seconds. Well, I made hundreds of these programs, and the last I heard, they were still using them. So I had the ability to create and sound edit anything, But how to make it work as a podcast, I had no idea. Until the coronavirus came around and saved me from going completely out of my mind. That's when I discovered Buzzsprout. Yeah, this is a shout out to them because they made it a piece of cake to upload and broadcast what I could create. Voila! 
the angry tenor was born. continue to talk about many of the things that happened when I was singing, I also am trying to find time to talk about other things loosely related to the arts. Thus, the segment on Beaujolais Nouveau. Not that that's necessarily arts-related, but when you're in the arts, you tend to want to drink a lot, and Beaujolais, Beaujolais Nouveau was, was the thing to wait for every November. Well, it's been a lot of fun doing this podcast, but it's an interesting, but it, it, at times it's a challenge. But what the heck? I'm 80 years old, and I think doing things like this only make you feel younger. Now, I've been asked about the music. The clips I play are representative of the story they accompany. I don't identify them because I think they are relevant and easily recognizable and most of them are from performances that I participated in. The opening and closing clips, however, are from Verdi's Otello. They're from Act Two, and officially the aria is called Tu Indietro Fuji, but is known, at least to me, as Otello's Adio. It was recorded live at a performance in St. Gallen, Switzerland, and from the audience level on a small cassette recorder. Now, I don't expect to compete with the younger folks who do podcasts, but I haven't heard very many that make me want to tune in week after week. Not saying I'm that one, but I try. And that is what makes the angry tenor happy. Just thinking off the top of my head, there have been some very interesting things that I have been asked to do as an opera singer. I remember a production I did of The Rake's Progress. I was on the roster of my first opera house in Germany and was obligated to sing what they asked me to do as long as it was in my Fach. A Fach is your role-determining description, that is, soprano, lyric, or dramatic, and the same with all the voices. When rehearsal for the Rake's Progress began, I was already committed to appear as Don Alvaro 
in a new production of Verdi's La Forza del Destino in another theater. This Gaspiel had been approved by my home theater, as was the protocol. The theater had assigned the other tenor in my Fach to take over the rake's progress. Then the rub began. The stage director for rake's progress wanted me and insisted rehearsals could not go forward without me. Voila! According to my contract, my home theater could withdraw their permission at any time and insist that I return to do this production. Well, the theater doing La Forza was very upset. However, the two theater managers got together and worked out a compromise so I could do both. Still, the stage director was not happy. But it was forced upon him, and this is what we did. I divided my rehearsal time between the two theaters, which were about a two-hour drive apart, and sang both premieres. If only that's where it all ended. The stage director, so angry at me for the situation, was determined to make my life miserable for the rake's progress. He did a lot of little things that he knew would piss me off, like smoking during rehearsal. Well, I had to stop and refused to go on until he agreed to not smoke in rehearsal, but that's what happened. But the worst thing that he did was during Tom's aria, where he first says has, has gotten all of his wealth and he's ready to go out into the world and he's changing clothes into his finery. While I was changing clothes, he wanted me to strip down to my underwear. <laughs> of course I refused, and I told him and the theater director... People came to hear me sing, not see me naked. That may have been a little pretentious on my part, but I wasn't wrong. I never sang another production of Rake. This one allowed me only seven performances, but I loved the role. As far as Stravinsky goes, I think it was his most melodic moment. I sang at Oedipus Rex, and it was not quite so easy as Tom Rakewell, even though it was a shorter opera. One advantage of Rex I got, though, is I sang the same production over a two-year period. I don't remember how many performances, but it got me a super contact with a large opera house in northern Germany, as the intendant of that house was the narrator for Oedipus Rex, and I had lots of audition time. This also makes the angry tenor happy.
long time, I lived in Odenwald, Germany, a very large wilderness just south of Frankfurt, bordered on the southwest by Heidelberg and on the northwest by Darmstadt. Now, the main subject here is Darmstadt, about 60 kilometers, or about 35 miles, away from um, my house. Needless to say, I was a frequent guest there, and at times it almost felt like my home theater. Well, one day I was called by the theater manager. This is a, a position below the general director, who was largely tasked with the day-to-day -day running of the theater. When a singer reported sick and unable to sing, he was the person who found a guest to step in. Normally, he would call the agents, but in my case, he often called me directly. I still had to pay my agent, but he didn't, as the theater split the agent's fees 50-50 with the singer, and he hadn't made a call to the agent. Hmm. Oh well. He wanted me to step in that night as Otello in their new production that had only had their premiere days before. I had read the reviews, and they were not very flattering to the stage director who was directing his first opera after having had many successes with the legit theater or Schauspiel. So I was nervous when I arrived, and I also learned upon my arrival that my Desdemona would be Cheryl Studer. Already making a name for herself, as von Karian was showing interest in her. So, I didn't have a chance to meet her before the performance, as I was too busy learning all the ridiculous things I would have to do while singing a very difficult role. After the performance, we sat down in the cantina, where she commiserated about what she had been asked to do. Now, before the start, she was sitting on the stage in front of the audience, making paper airplanes to toss out into the audience, but most of them were landing in the pit. That was actually the first time I had seen her. So, the stage director, whose name I have forgotten, decided that Otello was not a Moor, but came from Chad. For Otello's first entrance then, the Ezeldate, uh, in which he was entering from the downstage wing, dressed in a loincloth, with a spear in one hand, and a super flung over his left shoulder, approached Desdemona, sing the Ezeltate, and then drop the super in front of Desdemona. <laughs> well, needless to say, I refused. I wasn't going to carry somebody in on my shoulder and stand there with him on my shoulder singing Ezeltate, with the high B natural in it, of course. Well, the stage manager then organized two other supers, both of whom had refused to carry him on their shoulder, to carry him head and foot behind me, drop him on my cue in front of Desdemona. Now, what was she to do with him? I had no idea. The rest of the scene played out in front of the chorus, who the entire time had been standing upstage in choir formation and never moved, except when they finally had to leave because the duet was coming up. Well, I can't remember all the other things I had to do, except for the arrival of Montano in Act 3, the chorus in usual position, and the soloists in metal folding chairs with music stands in front of them, sort of standing like in an oratorio where we welcomed, where we welcomed Montano. The other thing that stood out was the spying scene, where Otello spies on Cassio and Desdemona and he sings the terzet while moving around the columns at the back of the stage 
always trying to stay out of sight of those two. But we didn't have any columns. Instead, we had a bed. Pretty sure it was the same bed Desdemona used in Act 4. So, here was Cassio and Desdemona sitting on the bed singing their stuff, and Otello singing his stuff from under the bed in between their legs. I kid you not. So during and after the performance, I expressed to the theater director so much anger, and I told him I would not sing this production again. Period. And I didn't. I had planned to talk of one of my favorite times and places during the Christmas season, and that is at a Glühwein stand at some Christmas market anywhere in Germany or France, but Germany I know best. Unfortunately, this year, all of the Christmas markets are closed because of COVID-19. Hopefully they'll return next year, but I still would like to talk about them. When I sang in Munich as a guest before I was home ported there, I stayed at the Hotel am Markt. During the four weeks before Christmas, the Markt was turned into a massive Christmas market, known better as a Christkindl Mart or a Weihnachtsmart. The Glühwein, oh the Glühwein. There is no better thought than the smell of Glühwein wafting over the streets many blocks away from the market. Glühwein is a hot wine with many herbs and the taste, especially on a cold snowy evening, is just remarkable. And sitting at a Glühwein stand at a Christmas mart, everybody is your friend. The second most memorable thing, well, now you can buy all kinds of Christmas decorations and presents and, and stuff like that at a Christmas market, but the second thing for me were the sausages, or the bratwurst. And the best bratwurst came from Nuremberg. Nuremberg is the best known of all of the Christmas markets anywhere. Now, the sausages, because they are only as thick as a finger, they develop a particularly robust grill aroma. Whether you come from Nuremberg, or just visiting, or, or do you order the Franconian way, dry im Wegkla, or three in a bun, they are fantastic. A long tradition has produced numerous legends and myths surrounding the Nuremberg Bratwurst. One legend says they are made so small to allow innkeepers to sell them through the keyholes of their taverns during closing hours. Another says that their size was determined by a hole in the wall of the Nuremberg dungeons. The prisoners, according to legend, were fed by sausages pushed through a tiny opening, hence the name the German name of the jail, Lochgefängnis, the prison with a hole. The reality is much more mundane. It was most likely rising commodity prices in the 16th century that caused the butchers of Nuremberg to shrink the size of their sausages. Only then could they maintain their high-quality standards at the same price. Nuremberg bratwurst were first mentioned in 1313, a city council regulation required local butchers Sveinenland Praden in die Wurste zu hacken, 
and now I butchered that one, but that means uh, to only use the best whole pieces of pork loin to make their sausage meat. The heyday of these little sausages came in the middle of the 19th century. At that time, Nuremberg, with its late medieval architecture and reputation as Germany's little treasure chest, became a place of inspiration for followers of the Romantic. The artists and intellectuals were soon followed by the first tourists, and they discovered, along with the Imperial Castle, St. Lawrence Church, and Albrecht Dürrhaus, Franconian cuisine. Christmas market in Munich is called the Münchener Christkindlmarkt, and it bursts out of the Marienplatz, winding all the way up the shopping street and reaching the Richard Strauss Fountain. You can expect a Bavarian extravaganza with hand-painted glass balls and home-brewed, you got it, Glühwein. If you wander the stalls lit up by the massive Christmas tree in front of the town hall, 2,500 candles creating a warm, merry glow. In Cologne, the Christmas market is set before the Gothic backdrop of the Cologne Cathedral. And under the largest Christmas tree in all of the Rhine, it's the Weihnachtsmarkt am Kölner Dome. And you can find the wooden pavilions where they have the, uh, the, the different shops set up, where you'll find handmade gifts from wood carvings, tree decorations, and soaps. But there is one other thing that you have to pay attention to. Because this is a perfect place, you gotta grab yourself a mug and fill up on Glühwein before joining the festivities with song and dancing in the street. In Dresden, there is a blaze of lights glittering over the river with a thick scent of Glühwein in the air. The sound of festive music and the twirling of carousels, the Dresden Streetzelmarkt, sets the atmosphere for Christmas cheer. Not only is it the oldest Christmas market in Germany, but it also showcases the world's tallest Christmas pyramid which reached a staggering height of 14.62 meters. Hmm, I'll let you figure out how tall that actually is, though I can tell you a meter is roughly the same size as a yard. The most recent record was crowned at the Berlin Christmas Market at a height of 20 meters. Now that would be 20, that would be 60 feet tall. Yes, okay. And so these are the Christmas markets, and there are many, many more. There are just way too many in Germany to count. And all of those in France uh, are just way too numerous to, to talk about. But these are the biggest ones. These are the most famous ones. And these are the ones that you really need to visit. However, this year you will not be able to visit them. All of the Christmas markets 
in both France and Germany, are closed. Might be an exception in a really small town where they go ahead and open it anyway on their small town square, but for the most part, they're all closed. And we will all have to wait another year for that glass of Glühwein. Not completely true. Not completely true. I got a bottle of Glühwein for Thanksgiving. My daughter brought me a bottle of Glühwein. It's not the same thing coming in a bottle like that. It's not the same as home-brewed. But in a pinch, it'll do. And that, the Glühwein, is what makes the angry tenor happy. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder... The Angry Tenor goes live every Monday evening at 7 p.m. Now, I'd like to hear from you, so if you would send your comments to heldentenore at att.net. That's heldentenore at att.net. Let me know in your email if you would like to have this broadcast on the podcast, and I'll do it. If not, I won't. So, I'm John Sayers, and I am the Angry Tenor. Yeah!